Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that joining us now on the phone from Paris at the OECD headquarters is Laurence Boone, OECD Chief Economist. Laurence, great to have you with us. You're just out with your year ahead, trimming the outlook, but seeing a much bigger problem potentially brewing for the decade ahead. Just walk us through what you're seeing. So that's true. We've um, actually projecting growth to remain stuck at 2.93% for the next two years. Uh, And that's mostly due to all the uncertainty related to the trade tensions, uh, but also to China economic slowdown and, and much beyond that geopolitical and political economy uncertainty. Lawrence, how do you make a year ahead call? What's the base case around trade? How difficult is things this year? Well, you know, the, the difficulty with the trade tensions is that they're very focused on a few tariffs, which has which have a direct effect on the price of imported goods. So consumers pay higher for what they, what they buy. But the biggest effect is the uncertainty that's creating. Because if you're firm today, you don't really know when you where you're going to launch your next investment. Because these trade tensions jump from countries to countries to start and and then at heart, there is a profound insatisfaction with the way that um, uh, that um, a lot of support to government subsidies, protection of intellectual property, yeah. technology transferred, all this is mingled within this discussion. And they are very deep-rooted problems that will take a long time to address. Right. Although you are seeing a guarded optimism heading into 2020, a lot of economists and investors seeing a resurgence in the global economy. Can you square that with the deteriorating outlook uh, from the OECD? So I think there are two things to distinguish. If if you get a an agreement uh, on what's called the phase one between the US and China, then yes, market will have some temporary relief and cheer up. But as I was saying, the issues surrounding trade are much beyond what we are seeing here. Um, and they have to do with the way that digital digitalization has changed trade and commercial exchanges. They have to see with all the subsidies uh, and form of government supports that are there, which are undermining the level playing field. And this issues will take years to resolve, especially if we are just focusing on bilateral tariffs. Uh, it's like if you were focusing on the top of the iceberg when the iceberg below the sea level is, is growing. Laurence, your predecessor at OECD, Catherine Mann, now at Citigroup, as at OECD, was quite strident about the roll-up that we're seeing in world business because of slow economic growth. She would speak of scale and the idea of monopsony, the idea of monopoly coming in to play. We're seeing that in America this morning with a merger in discount brokerage reported of Schwab and TD Ameritrade. Do you in Paris still believe that we will see a roll-up of global business because of slow economic growth? 
So there are things threatening globalization, and that's the trade tension that we have discussed, and it's also the possible tax fragmentation that the OECD is trying to address. Um, and that relates really well to how our business is going to thrive in tomorrow's world. And for that, we need more certainty, more predictability, and a better level playing field. And that means, you know, ending this tit for tat tensions and tariffs. It also means concluding, as we expect, the international negotiation on the taxation of multinational enterprises. As you know, we've been working on this for a while now, and we really think that we can conclude yeah. an agreement in 2020. That would change this pessimism of globalization. I mean, what, what this comes down to, and Lawrence Boone, I'm going to uh, uh, cite here Megden Desai at the London School of Economics, which is all of economics is about profitability. Given the OECD view, how you extend uh, your timeline out to 2001, will there be a dearth of prop, prop, prop? I'll get it out. Three, two, one. Will there be a dearth of profitability as we have slower economic growth? Well, that's what that's one of the things we're really concerned about. If you stay with very sluggish growth for a long time, then there will not be enough revenues to to you know there will be not enough growth to raise revenues and that applies to people as much as it applies to businesses and also also if you want profits to be lifted you need investment which is why we're particularly invest in insisting on the need for government to level up public investment because that's one of the main impediment to the implementation of private sector investment plans. Lawrence Boone, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate Thanks, the head of economics, the OECD here. Right now, Joe Quidlin, who's with us with decades of experience at Merrill at Bank of America, private bank, and out, of course, with uh, investment perspective. But Joe, you and I are going to wax philosophical here. Remember the first day discount brokerage showed up? You and I were like, what? What? Yes. Mm -hmm. Remember that? We can't do it ourselves, but it was super cheap, and we all, you know. They're never going to last. John, there, is discount brokerage a big deal in, in, in London? FX brokerage. People like, people like to trade foreign exchange yeah, to Yeah, very well said. Way. We don't do that. But it was it, Charles who? Right. Remember that? First, you know, it opened a whole new frontier for retail investors. People laughed for about six months until, oh, so here we are with a mating here. And it goes to your work on a broader investment strategy to slower economic growth, challenge profitability. One, when in doubt, you have to mate. That's all it's, all it's about. You have to look for that growth. Organically is very tough given the demographics, yeah, slower yeah. growth, lack of productivity. So, I mean, it, it, what's surprising me, Tom, like we, 10 years after the crisis, so to speak, we are starting to see some of the financial companies thinking about, you know, marrying or like at least observing each other. And what comes on, this is TD Ameritrade, folks. Of course, Joe Ricketts' firm uh, to be taken out by Schwab. It is presumed, it is not announced yet. CNBC reporting this and Fox Biz putting a $26 billion number on it. But it comes down to, to bring it over to John's uh, uh, world of, of, of yield, lower nominal GDP, 
some form of disinflation and growth that just doesn't get it done, right? Right. It doesn't get it done. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, Tom, like wanting and needing the scale. So if you don't have scale, you can't drive productivity or have the margin expansion. So this is about scale and reaching for that type of not organic growth, but kind of a merged growth. I want to challenge the idea that this is simply a case of slowing growth and really raise the question of an existential crisis facing the asset management and brokerage businesses. People want stuff for free. And how long can mating and scale sustain businesses that ultimately are going Going to zero fee models. Well, I would, I would push back a little bit if people want it for free because we've got a massive transfer of wealth coming in this country, like nine, ten trillion dollars. And in the private wealth space, they still want that service. They still need tax strategies. So I think your average retail investor does want it free and it's expecting it free. But there's also part of the industry where I still want to have access to uh, specialty asset management. I still want access to credit. I want the full line of concierge services. So I do think there is a segment that wants it free. But when you look at $10 trillion in inheritance being passed generationally, that's not going to be done on a, a retail wire. Do you see people willing to pay for that? All the services that you just described? They, they, they're willing to pay for it, but because of the competition, yes, the margins are coming down. Absolutely. Which means we, anyone like Bank of America or anyone in the industry, has to be more productive, has to have the right products in place and drive that growth. End up in this really strange world where companies like Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade end up making money like little banks. A little bit of candy for the deposits they have, take in a little bit more candy on doing other things with the money. What do you think of that as a business model, that all of these companies just get bigger and start behaving like little banks like little bank i mean i'm not i mean i work for a big bank so i mean I have, i'll preface it with that we'll see if it works or not but yes it, it's it's part it's part and He's parcel of the lack of growth compete. right it's it's part it's part of that like i got my model isn't producing what i expected in terms of revenue or profits what do i do next and rarely does that is that sustainable and or is it being set up for more mergers Got to talk about your broader market strategy as well. Uh, I said at the top of the program, investors at the moment seem to be lost between cautious optimism and total confusion over everything around China. How do you have any kind of optimism going into next year without any real clarity on some of these big issues? Well, I mean, look at earnings. Third quarter earnings weren't that bad. They're better than expected. You know, the economy is chugging along at 2%. <clears throat> it's not great, but we're in you know, 11th, 12th year of the expansion. The Chinese economy is growing at 5% plus. Europe is looking slightly better. Put it this way, Europe is looking less bad. So globally, we're bottoming out. The manufacturing numbers are getting better, but it's too early to jump with both feet. So, you know, whether it's healthcare, technology, robotics, automation, there's places to put money to work in equities. Are you sustaining U.S. dominant investment? Do you still believe U.S. large cap will lead after an up? What are we up? 24%? 24%? I think, Tom, it'll become more balanced next year between more developed Europe, Japan, and then the emerging markets. But, you know, the emerging markets, we've been waiting and waiting. Exactly. What's the cat? I mean, is it China trade clears? I, I think it's China trade clear. But you know, the emerging markets. I would just not throw that term out of the vocabulary and okay. look more specific. At, say at sectors, at countries. Okay. Technology versus consumption. That's the issue. That's the key. Issue. This has been wonderful, Joe Quinlan. Thanks, thank Joe. you so much for being with us with a ton of breaking news. Potential tie between Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade. Yeah. And as far as I know, Tom, no comment 
from either company. I agree, and it's good that you state that. This is a bit odd the way the flow is coming out. I know Fox Biz put a $26 billion statistic on the deal about five times sales. A tie-up would create a firm with roughly $5 trillion in combined assets. Yeah, and what's interesting, some serious AUM. Jim Cramer's shop, really interestingly, I I didn't know this, Schwab's commission trades, it's only 8% of their business. Where TD Ameritrade, it's what you'd expect. It's twenty three percent. You mentioned this on the program, the and Lisa weigh in. It's the it's the banks, the little banks within these brokerages. Yeah, That's well, how they're making yeah. the money. It's the hope to bring in customers that they can actually make bank on other layers of revenue streams. But is a question: How much are people willing to pay for that? When do they sort of demand free services there too? How do you make money from it? That's a big question. Joining us in the studio, I'm really pleased to say, looking forward to this interview, Lali Tovcholo joins us now, J-O-H-C-M, Senior Fund Manager. Good morning to you, Lali. Good morning. We won't be talking about TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab. I I can see you bracing for a potential question on that. Don't (laughs) worry. You know what we will talk about? Bill Dudley's piece, out on Bloomberg Opinion in the last 24 hours. Bloomberg Opinion columnist, formerly the New York Fed president, and of course he worked at Goldman with you many, many years ago. Lali, his comments on Triple Bs, that's where I want to start. Whenever this conversation comes up anyone outside of the fixed income world says this is a problem everyone inside of the fixed income world that i get to speak to lisa and tom have conversations with as well say this isn't a problem walk me through the issues at play here Sure. So, well, first of all, I'm really excited because I'm on the same height as Tom because usually I feel like a shrimp. You've got the so chair that, that lifted is, all the way is, up. This is, this is exciting. The um, issue is I ate so much at lunch yesterday. You're I'm weighing down a chair a little bit. Down. Yeah. Yeah. Two That's whole bowls of soup. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so the facts are correct. The triple Bs as a whole is about half of the U.S. investment grade index. And I think when you look at the largest, and actually came armed with data, if you look at the top 13 issuers within that, the debt numbers are staggering, right? So the top issuers would be something like AT&T, 190 billion of debt. And, And you go down the numbers. But if you look at these top 13, what's unique about them is, with the exception of the auto and energy, where perhaps you have a little bit more, well, you have more exposure to external shocks that may not be in your control. Everybody else has a very steady revenue stream. So the deleveraging path is there. So I don't want to ignore the fact that they're a large component. I just don't think that people should be as alarmed as that they should be. Okay, so then is the risk of some sort of fallout from the corporate debt buildup that Bill Dudley was flagging is that overstated or is that risk still there? Oh, I think the corporate over uh, debt build out, I think the risk is in a different way. So to me, you may know these numbers, but I think it's a staggered number. The US IG and high yield number is about eight and a half trillion dollars now. It's 2X since the financial crisis. And if you look at the debt in these credit assets that's in daily liquid mutual funds, it's a little, it's about a little over a trillion, okay? If you look at the US broker balance sheets of daily inventory of how much they're willing to trade and sort of keep on the books, 12 billion. So to me, the mismatch is not necessarily these things are gonna get downgraded from triple B to double B and the high yield is gonna be a total utter disaster. To me, the issue is how do you, when the selling point comes, how does the plumbing works? Because I don't think that's been tested and I don't think people understand that. So what do you think will happen, Lali? How do you think things will function? 
Well, you're gonna. It's gonna be a price discovery. So uh, it's good. In that, I I don't know. I mean, I think you may test where the, your marks are not accurate. It has nothing to do in, in some cases with the company's health. It's it's like selling your house, right? Your house is worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. You may think it's a million bucks. It depends where the bid comes in. So I spoke to PIMCO about these kind of issues earlier this year, and they said just in terms of their investment strategy, the way they want to play this, and I'll say this quite simply, and you can add some nuance to it, we want to be liquidity providers, not liquidity demanders. Wait for these kind of gappy moves in credit and then deploy capital. Lana, can you be that patient? Can you wait around for those kind of things? You certainly can, but look, I mean, this is another, it's a pet peeve of mine, and nothing against PIMCO. It's People always say there's cash on the sidelines. There's no such thing as cash on the sidelines, right? Nobody has bags of cash sitting in. It's sitting in something else, right? And usually, Actually, Tom Keen actually has bags of leveraged cash. <laughs> All right, and gold. Yes. and gold. Firmly and gold. on the sidelines. That's what it's sitting on. Um, That's why you're, uh, my height today, you're sitting uh, under you is the leveraged cash. Continue. <laughs> oh, boy. This conversation is getting dangerous. Um, it's when, when big fallouts happen, big wall events happen, the markets are connected, right? Everything kind of moves. So you have to sell something to fund something else. And that's where, yeah. you know, it becomes a lot difficult. So yes, in concept, can you buy 100 million, 200 million? Sure. Can you be able to deploy billions and immediately be able to take advantage at that time? I don't know. The solution always is the extend duration and extend maturity. Is that the trap of next year? When in doubt, go from X uh, to X plus one, X plus two. Is that what's going to happen? I, I don't know. I, duration, I think, is a very tough call. Um, we, we played around with it a little <clears throat> bit, and we played around in the context of, look, I think we're a little unsure whether the recovery is happening or not, so perhaps we're better off just literally buying 10-year treasuries and just not taking the credit risk as opposed to an IG credit. There's also uh, something that you were talking about before, which is liquidity risk. You hear a lot of investors saying that they are going into less liquid credit for the extra premium. (laughs) Embedded in what you're saying in terms of the structural issue, the plumbing issue in credit markets is, I believe, compared to what you said last time you were here, you are not taking liquidity risk and you'd rather go into stocks than risk your debt at this point based on liquidity. Can you give us a sense of where you are on that now? Uh, same playbook. We run a daily liquid mutual fund. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I like to think that I will never get a redemption, but that's just, that's just not the real world. So credit funds investing in stocks. Well, we run a commingled product, so it's not a pure credit, so it's credit and equity. Uh, but we'll always run it liquid. And look, there have been numerous evidences of these liquidity issues popping out and funds unwinding over the last several years. We just treat them as they're episodic and we just blame the manager. The underlying symptom is the same thing. You reach for yield and you went illiquid. And frankly, I have a hard time when I buy a mutual fund to figure out what they own. You really think people sit there and go through the line items? Lali, thank you. As always, thank you for joining us. Lali Topcholi there, J-O-H-C-O. Don't trip over the leverage. I thought I'd cut the interview off so Lali can get away to to television and run out of the studio. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. She's actually going to run. Kathy Jones is with Charles Schwab, and the way the game is played, folks, is if you're on staff, and particularly if you're on research staff, 
you can't talk about the business. She's looking at her phone through the so whole interview. So don't ask her we're, about the business. We're not going to ask her about the business. Okay. And of course, the reports this morning of a meeting between Schwab and Ameritrade. We will move on to fixed income and the host of The Real Yield will drive forward that conversation. Let's talk about it, Kathy. You have been a lot more conservative about your views and risk assets and fixed income. High yield is getting back out to in and around 400 basis points, just looking at that spread. Kathy, your thoughts on the riskier part of fixed income at the moment? Yeah, John, we, we haven't really changed our view. This, As you know, that spread has been widening, narrowing, widening, narrowing all year, back and forth, back and forth. And um, our concern is, you know, it still hasn't changed, that we've had deteriorating credit quality, um, much more leverage in the corporate uh, bond space than I, I think is justified by the rate of growth. So corporate profits are growing much more slowly um, than corporate leverage. And all that sets us up for, um, we think, is, is some sort of a, a correction in the market. So we're underweight high yield and continue to think that that's just a too risky an area to uh, have a lot of exposure right now. Kathy, this has been an area that people have been hating on for a long time. Junk bonds, uh, not a loved asset class, even as they've rallied. Now, however, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, among others, are starting to kind of tiptoe into even the triple C rated debt, the lowest tier of junk bonds. And I'm wondering, what are they getting wrong in your view? You know, I'm not really sure why um, you would be crazy about triple C's, except that they've underperformed the rest of the high yield market. So maybe they, you know, maybe there's a view that they can take advantage of a convergence between triple C's and and the rest of the high yield market in a benign Fed scenario, which is what we have. Uh, but it, it strikes me as um, the old the old idea of picking up nickels in front of the steamroller. You know, uh, it's not probably a game that most people want to play. What's the trigger here to uh, spur the sell-off here? Well, I think you could have a, a couple of things. One could be um, that the leverage gets to be too much for some of the players, and, and we start to see some weakening there, uh, and uh, the spreads blow out that way. Um, so more economically driven uh, than anything else. And it might be just sector-based. You know, we've already seen underperformance by energy. If you had another sector that suffered, um, that could be the case. Um, or it could be the surprising surprising strength in the economy, which uh, leans people towards viewing that rates might actually go up for safe assets. Now, we don't think that's a real yeah. likely scenario, but um, that could also cause uh, high-yield spreads to move. Kathy Jones, the charm of what you do and Lizanne Saunders does every day is you understand flows of retail like no one. What is What are people actually doing with their money in fixed income? I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Are they... You know, you say, well, I want you to buy a two-year coupon. You're like, really? Or are they all out of 20-plus years trying to make total return? Well, you know, of course, we have a wide variety yeah, of investors. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot Cut of investors the, have yeah, been yeah. staying very short duration because, frankly, the yields aren't that attractive to, to take mm. on duration risk. Yeah. Some have been moving into riskier assets, but I would say it's mostly a, a pretty much a, a short-duration, high-quality story for, for many investors. I look at full faith and credit versus uh, full faith uh, and credit versus the credit market, and I guess you can pick up yield there. How much do I actually pick up if I go into the credit market versus government bonds and paper? So if you're an investment grade, you're going to pick up 100 basis points or so, 1%. One percentage point. Change. 
Yeah, in a higher quality um, investment grade corporate bond. And the other thing is we have a lot of investors in municipal bonds. And actually after tax for many investors, municipal bonds make more sense than say Okay, great. But what's the movement in muni bonds has been extraordinary this year. I mean, can you state that muni bonds price up, yield down, or price to perfection? I wouldn't say price to perfection, but you know clearly valuations, uh, particularly at the short end of the curve, has have moved this year. As you go out the curve, valuations have actually improved because we've gotten a little bit more supply. Let's bring some life to the investment grade part of the market, Kathy. We've had this big discussion over the last couple of days about triple Bs. It's come up so many times over the last couple of years. For anyone outside of fixed income tuning in and interested in the concept, if you look at the market. Every security that comes to market will have a credit rating. The line in the sand between investment grade and junk is triple B. And within the triple B complex of big well-known companies like Ford, AT&T, the likes of AB and Beth. AB and, Beth. and the worry is, Kathy, that in an economic downturn, these guys won't have done the hard work. The balance sheets won't look good and they'll drop down to junk status. Kathy, just weigh in to that broader debate at the moment. Well, it's certainly a risk. We know that a lot of those companies have stated that they're focused on maintaining a triple B rating and not getting um, downgraded into to junk status. But, um, you know, good intentions are just bad, good intentions. So if we were to hit a, a downturn yeah. and you would see some of these big companies downgraded, the market for high yield is much smaller. The, the pool of buyers is much smaller than in the investment grade area. And the worry is if you get one of these big companies that gets downgraded, you have a lot of securities hitting the high yield market. And inevitably, there's a big price gap that the whole market would probably yeah. feel. I mean, this, to put this into English, so we could do this with Lisa Bramo and Farm Girl. At Fargo, North Dakota, I mean, the 20-year piece out of Fargo, North Dakota is a 4% coupon priced to 110. Yield to worst is 3.3%, and I'm enjoying a 2% coupon right now. Fargo's reliable. I actually, that's probably less risky than other areas. Well, you, I'm just saying. When I, I'm just saying. No, but but that's an example well, of where it's a 4%. Lisa feels like she just made it's a four, an investment call. It's a 4%. Do you want to, do you want to take I'm, that I'm, back? I'm getting, no, I, no I, I'm not saying that. It's a 4% coupon No, I'm not going to take it back. 2%. I stand by it. Listen, <laughs> no, I, Kathy, years? before we let you go, and uh, before we start talking about the Farm Journal, I do want to get your sense on liquidity risk, because this is something that Lali Taptolu uh, was just talking about, that she's really concerned about a breach in the plumbing. Do you buy that? Is that still a concern, even though most people seem to have forgotten? Well, it, it's obviously still on the radar, but I think the Fed has has made huge uh, moves to address it right now, so I wouldn't be as concerned as we were uh, six months or a year ago. You know, it's funny because it, it all sort of came to a head in, in September when we had the spike in the in the repo rate, but this is something people have been talking about since the Fed started to unwind its balance sheet. So um, I think they've taken huge steps to to address it, and I'm much less concerned than I was a while back. Kathy Jones, great to catch up with you, Charles Schwab, Chief Fixed Income Strategist. We finished strong today through my morning. It has been spectacular to touch upon the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing. And of course, the highlight of this without question was Neil Ferguson's conversation with Henry Kissinger. We are now almost 50 years on from what those of us of a certain vintage remember is absolutely shocking. I can't 
begin to calculate the shock of that 1971 morning into 1972 as President Nixon went there. I've actually, Paul, had the, the honor of being at the Peace Hotel in Shanghai in the room that Henry Kissinger was in literally the night before he flew to Beijing right. to get this thing yep. started. And we have the right guest now. He is Ambassador Bacchus. He's a gentleman from Montana. Of course, you know him from his public service to the nation as a senator uh, and as our 11th ambassador to China. We're just thrilled, Max Bacchus, you could be with us uh, today. Max, you were at Stanford and then on back to Montana as a politician. Do you have a recollection of that absolute shock when America woke up and, and Nixon so changed that moment with China? I do. I very much do. And I uh, remember the photographs of what um, occurred there when Nixon went over. It's interesting to me, too. Um, this is not really directly on point, but uh, Mike Mansfield, a former ambassador yes. to, um, I came across a speech he wrote in 1966 um, explaining why the United States should spend more time with China and understand China. It was the best, most effective statement I've ever read by anybody on any subject. And I talked to Henry Kissinger about that just last week. And he said, yes, Mike had a big influence on our going over to China, on President Nixon going to China. So, yeah, I was I was. I, I do remember it. And this was so important, folks, because Senator Baucus and Senator Mansfield and others in the House and in the dialogue were so isolated from a discussion that came out of all of World War II uh, in the fractious 50s and 60s. Here is Henry Kissinger today with Bloomberg in Beijing, Max Baucus, looking at the foothills of a Cold War. How close are we? To the, it's a beautiful phrase. How close are we to the foothills of a Cold War after what you've observed with U.S.-Chinese relationships in the last year or two? Well, we're slipping in that direction, unfortunately. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a, first, of all, first of all, it's somewhat natural, rising power, established power. People talked about this so-called Thucydides trap. But we're uh, kind of accelerating it. The United States is. We're, we're not helping um, manage the relationship as well as we should. And in the same vein, um, President Xi is pretty nationalistic, and he also is, I think, contributing to the, the problem. Uh, we have two very strong-willed people each side of the Pacific, and neither one wants to really do a deal in the way one should do a deal. So, Senator, there seems to be bipartisan support that there needs to be a real frank dialogue between the China and the U.S. about trade. Um, so that seems to have some support. Where do you think this may be going wrong here? I think, frankly, um, I don't mean to sound particle or partisan or political or partisan. I think part of the problem is, is President Trump's approach to this is a bit flawed. He is trying to shake, shake China up by slapping these tariffs on and that, frankly, is not working. Our trade deficit now is much higher now than it was back when he took office. Second, it's not going to hit the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem clearly is is the structural problems in China, you know, forced technology transfers, subsidies, and, and the like. But um, to solve it, you need, frankly, somebody to sit down, a president who understands this, a president who really wants to solve it, and and, and does so privately, not publicly, without all that is in Twitter, and starts to build up trust and confidence right. with, with the Chinese. That hasn't happened. 
Senator Baucus, because of news flow, we're going to have to keep it shorter today, and it's most regrettable, but I must touch upon Hong Kong. Senator McConnell has provided leadership and with Senator Rubio of Florida in making uh, a statement about Hong Kong by our legislative branch. He succeeded in that with the Senate and the House waiting for the president's signature on a legislative effort to tell and send a message to Beijing, and for that matter, to Carrie Lam in Hong Kong. Is this appropriate foreign diplomacy by our legislative branch? Frankly, I have, I have trouble with it. Um, it's not going to help the protesters. Frankly, it's, uh, the more it will probably hurt the protesters because if the United States does not give a special status to Hong Kong or if it sanctions certain people in Hong Kong or China over human rights, that's going to set back the protesters. Second, it's going to also put another nail in the, in the bipolar uh, in, the, in, the, in the coffin that's driving the U.S. and China apart from each other. It's going to very much upset China. And third, it's not going to help get, help us get a trade deal. Frankly, if I were in the Senate, I'd vote against it. This will hurt the protesters, not help them. Senator Baucus, thank you so much. He's the 11th ambassador to China for the United States, and we're thrilled that he join us today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 